You're listening to Clinically Thinking. My name is Nina Cook and today I'm joined by Andrew Fuller. Andrew is a clinical psychologist with a passion for helping families, schools and communities raise the next generation of Australians to be resilient people. He has done tons of stuff to this end, individual work with kids and families, working in schools, research into resilience, writing books, appearing on TV and in print media, producing online resources and hosting the brilliant podcast Generation Next that complements the social enterprise protecting and enhancing the mental health of young people. It would probably take me another 45 minutes to go through your bio, Andrew, so I might... Feel free. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to welcome you to Clinically Thinking. Hi, it's great to be with you. Thanks, Nina, and thanks everyone for listening. Okay. So we're speaking to you today because we have the privilege of you joining us at the 2022 APS Clinical College Conference in May to give a keynote. And we wanted to give listeners an insight into your work and a sneak peek into your keynote topic, which is working with tricky kids and tricky behaviours. <laughs> this is a podcast for clinical psychologists, and of course that's a diverse bunch, but not many of us would have had the same career trajectory as you. So I'm curious as to where it all started. How did you get interested in studying clinical psychology? So I grew up in Geelong and in Geelong as a sort of 14-year-old, nobody had ever heard of clinical psychology. And um, I'm not quite sure how the idea came into my head to go home and say to my parents, that's what I'm going to do. Um, but it was a bit of a shock to them, I must say, because they thought, well, what do they do? And I, I'm not sure I had a real answer either, but it was something that I kind of latched onto as a, as a passion. So one of the things that I was very lucky at was to basically develop a passion for doing this type of work at quite a relatively young age. And from there on to pursue that. And I'm very grateful that I have because... One of the great things about clinical psychology is that you get the license to study everything, really. It's basically a license to study human life and animal life, if you want, as well. Um, and so that's, I think, an incredible gift. And so I've never really, I mean, there's been hard days, of course, but I've never regretted that choice. It's been a, a wonderfully stimulating and privileged career, really, to be in the presence of so many people in their private moments discussing the meaning of their lives or trying to reassemble their lives after hard times. And so it's been an incredible journey really uh, to think about that I became fascinated really in how people live their lives but also how people change their lives but perhaps I'll, I'll come to that in a moment. So did you study in Geelong or did you have to trek up to Melbourne for your? Oh like many <laughs> young people you want to get away for a bit so I headed to Melbourne and ended up touring my way academically through the three major universities at that time in Melbourne, uh, Monash, Melbourne and La Trobe University. So um, <laughs> had, to, had to keep ahead of the game a bit, um, but uh, had a great time, of course. So Monash, particularly in those days, was an intriguing place of you know, student revolution and uh, uh, an amazing kind of uh, social action. So it became a really exciting kind of place to begin and then moved from there to Melbourne and then back to Monash and then back to, and then onto La Trobe, which was also a fascinating kind of place in those stages. Uh, a sort of form of student radicalism 
which we don't often see as quite as active, which is in some ways a great sadness to me. So after uni, where did you first work as a clinical psychologist? Well, I was very fortunate. I basically picked up some work in the Commonwealth Employment Service. Essentially, from there, I became involved uh, in thinking about careers and how people select careers and got a really kind of nice gig in this very palatial suite overlooking the Supreme Court Dome in Melbourne, I remember, and developed uh, what was called Jack, which was Job and Course Explorer, a sort of automated or computerised Job and Course Explorer that basically was used in every library uh, in Australia, I think, at one stage. It's now, you know, of course, uh, outmoded by many other forms of, of that kind of work. But it was a really revolutionary time in terms of developing technology and uh, and human thinking. So that was a, a, a big team of people that I was managing and uh, got, got my head around a bit of programming and how you, you, you do that into human decision-making. So really exciting stuff. And along along. The way while I was doing that, I became, and I think the right word is enchanted by the work of Milton Erickson. And Milton Erickson, of course, the famous uh, hypnotherapist and his works and really how intrigued by his, um, his capacity to draw out the strengths in people under really interesting and innovative ways. And I, I remember spending el- inordinate hours reading transcripts of his hypnotic inductions and uh, and really thinking deeply about hypnosis. In fact, that became the, the topic of my master's thesis. But um, it was also really then thinking about how you use that sort of language in really interesting ways to create shifts in people's thinking. And so I, I, I bear a great kind of debt to, to him and to his protege, Rob McNeely, who's uh, still working, now lives in Hobart, uh, who very kindly took me under his wing and, and taught me the basics and the fundamentals of hypnotic communication. So it was the, the way in which hypnotic communication could be used to elicit strengths that really drew your attention, the idea of the, the strengths being brought forward in the person? Yeah, I think it was a really innovative way of thinking about how, um, I mean, hypnotic trance is something that occurs naturally for us all throughout every day. So it's not a foreign state for any of us. Um, But it wasn't so much the trance or the induction so much as the communication and the strategy. So I was very fortunate in the late 80s to go to the States and uh, watch Jay Haley and Chloe Madanis and strategic therapists like that at work, uh, John Wigland, um, basically working in terms of how they went about creating shifts in people's psyche. So I was intrigued partly because it seemed to me that their attitude was one where, and, and Ericsson's as well, was that the therapist had a responsibility for, to create a sort of learning space within which clients could grow so that clients were assumed already to be health-seeking, you know, in the, in the classic example of, uh, of, uh, of Ericsson's stories, you know, going into a psychiatric hospital and then uh, saying to a client who thought that he was Jesus Christ. I believe you've got some excels in carpentry. Let's use them. Um, 
<laughs> sorts of things I think are hilarious, really. Um, but basically using that kind of strength-based utilization of those in, in people's lives. And I've found that to be incredibly valuable throughout, really, because that then led, really, for me, I then decided to go and work in psychiatric hospitals, which I, I loved doing. Um, and it was really in the last... Uh, the last great surge of the psych hospitals in Australia. I mean, the, the, the sort of community uh, decentralisation of psych hospitals was beginning. And it was an interesting time to be involved in that. Um, and we can sit outside it and talk about its failures. But it was a, a, a really interesting time. And I worked at two particular hospitals. I worked at La Rundle, which is in the north of Melbourne. And I also worked at Willsmere, which was, you know, very old originally an asylum and uh, a place where people really were resident for for a very long time and uh, it was a place filled with craziness utter utter madness and uh, it was fascinating to me because you know I, I remember at Willsmere the gardens had peacocks and I'm not sure why they had peacocks, but anyway, even the peacocks were crazy because the, one of the one of the male peacocks had fallen in love with a telephone booth and wouldn't allow any of the the patients to basically use the telephone booth. It would guard this anyway. So um, I just thought the whole thing was just a, a fascinating land of aberration, and it was at that time. How did you find looking for strength in that kind of an environment? Well, even in that environment we had all sorts of clientele many of whom had had quite rapid um, decompensation so it was interesting when I was working in the acute wards at those quite often people that would be admitted would either be um, well we had quite a number of prominent um, artists who would uh, probably have a bit too many drugs and then would have a kind of psychotic breakout who would end up on our doorstep or in our care for a while. So that was interesting in terms of strength itself. But just in terms of thinking about how you might use that imagination, that strength to start to create change. So typically, of course, the traditional thinking at that time was that the sort of uh, content of psychotic phenomena was not to really be interpreted. And yet it became really apparent to me that people select, well, whether they selected or whether it's basically biochemically charged well it's probably both but um there's meaning behind the psychotic phenomenon that people have and so so it's a signal of what's going on and so you know i, I remember people that would talk about you know terrible visions and voices and and uh that would often reflect some of the torment that had happened in their lives so it was useful to think about well before probably the trauma informed work that has so prevalent today, how you kind of understand that, you know, these things don't just occur by accident. They occur because some, you know, they reflect someone's experience as well as some of their disorder. So how did you move from that environment into a more child and family focus? Well, that's a bit of a tale in itself because when this decentralisation was going on, and I was very lucky to to spend some time working with prominent clinical psychologists, particularly Rick Pawsey and uh, and his team at Baronia, uh, 
and also Dandenong Sark Centre with, with Robert Swartzer and his team as well, which, which were great experiences and doing sort of family therapy particularly. And it was a very exciting time of family therapy training. And so then basically what happened was the emergence of the cat teams. And so I got involved in cat teams and cat teams were fascinating in their first iteration of them. We would run around in small Mitsubishi cars <laughs> doing amazing, amazing things, really. Um, and one of the, it was quite a joyful time in a funny kind of way, but because we were so... Uh, we were so strong at the ad advocates for basically allowing people as much treatment in the community as we possibly could. But as a side issue, we became, all of us, I think, incredibly skilled at the arts of car, breaking into cars and breaking into houses, really, um, because, of course, we would have people who'd be bailed up and at risk their neighbours would call and say, you know, we're, we're worried about them and would, would knock on the door and we couldn't get in. So we didn't really, this is probably frowned upon <laughs> in modern age, but we'd just find a way to get in. Or sometimes we'd find people, of course, who were attempting things in their cars and we would we became masters at basically unlocking locked cars. It became an incredible skill. And uh, we were very proud as a team of our, our, our uh, criminal – well, we weren't criminal, but we were <laughs> – we had the skills. Um, I remember walking into situations which were just remarkable. There was one, one family that stand out in my memory who – were, I was out there visiting their home and there were guns everywhere and there was a family dispute and they were pointing guns at one another. I'm standing in the middle of it kind of uh, trying to basically stop them shooting one another. And I said, look, this is just too dangerous for me. I need you to, if you're going to, if you, if you need some support, I need you to come into the hospital. I can't tolerate this level of risk. And so they, they agreed. <laughs> it's interesting how families who are so vigorously in conflict can sometimes come to an agreement about something. Uh, anyway, they all travelled into the hospital in a small car and sadly, well, not sadly, they actually had a, a small minor ac car accident on the way in. And uh, they showed up uh, at the hospital ashen-faced the, the thought that they might have been all killed in this car accident was was basically absolutely transformational for them. Now, <laughs> they realised that basically, you know, time was not, you know, never-ending and basically they weren't all Im immortal. And so that was the foundation of basically changing that family. Really, uh, you know, it had nothing to do with me. It basically had to do with a, an incident. But it really taught me how single events in people's lives can create massive changes in their existence. Um, and so as I was sitting, you know, on in sieges and bridges and developing my semi-criminal career <laughs> in terms of housebreaking and car breaking, I really was thinking about how do I stop people getting to that point in their lives, really. That really made me think, well, I need to kind of I'd like to basically try to help people create futures that they can fall in love with. And that became a bit of a, uh, a sort of calling card mission for my work, really. How do, I, how do I work with people to create futures that they can fall in love with? And indeed, even in the most dire circumstances, that became really what I would try to do. 
that then led me to get interested, of course, I, I moved then to the Austin Hospital and worked in a CAMS there, and we did a whole lot of family therapy, which was exhilarating again uh, in terms of really working with those families. But I was thinking, how do I basically go further and further back, if you like, down the line to try to work with different groups to stop that? And that got me intrigued in working with schools because if you want to work with a, a vast bulk of people to try and prevent that outcome of being on that bridge or in that siege situation, that's a logical place to begin. And this is in the early 1990s, and I was very fortunate to land quite a large research grant to basically do some study on a, an unknown topic in those days. So the unknown topic was resilience, which is hard to imagine now because the word's so well known and sometimes misused. And so we did a very large study um, involving about 212 schools across Australia doing focus groups on with young people about what they thought. And then we compared that with a group of, of young adults in their early 20s who'd had really tough times and asked them about what got them through that time. And if, if I boil down that research, Basically, it paired back to really three major themes, which I evolved in later. But at that stage, it seemed that what was really potent in the turnaround points for young people was having a sense that you're loved by at least one family member. So even in a very dysfunctional family, having one family member just thinks you're, you know, you're the hot, hottest slice of red on you know on the, on the shelf um, basically is a wonderful gift. So you don't have to fix the entire family. It's good if you can, but if you can get that relationship happening, that's fine. The second one was having an adult outside your family who takes a shine to you. And I think that's a remarkable thing as well. The power of that, having an adult who is not related to you, who just basically... And it was very interesting to kind of think about that. So that, that person could be a therapist, but it could also be a, a teacher or a music teacher or a, it could be, an, you know, a community member. But it was the way the young people spoke about it was like having somebody who could see something in me that I couldn't see in myself. And so that then led me to discover a quote by Alfred Adler, which I really found also inspirational. Adler wrote in 1928 that people don't learn to try to succeed in socially undesirable ways until they've learned that they can't succeed in socially desirable ways. And I thought that's that's an amazingly insightful comment. And uh, and so I think what those young people those adults were giving those young people at that time was that belief that they could succeed in socially desirable ways. In fact, the power of those people, which often was done without them knowing, the adults knowing that they were doing it, was so powerful, I, I began to regard that those adults without knowing it often were giving that, that young person a gift that they'll spend the rest of their lives unwrapping, really. And and the next, the, the third factor was having a diversity of friendship groups. So I might hang around with all the really difficult drug using kind of, you know, kids. But if I've got a, another peer group as well, that was massively protective. And so that became then the mainstay of that early 
bit of research and work on resilience? How do you create that? So I, I gathered together all of this sort of wonderful research and I was incredibly excited by it. This is world-beating stuff, I thought to myself. You know, people are going to be fascinated. So I then sort of launched myself and I thought, <laughs> I'll go and give a talk at a principals conference because school principals will love this stuff. I thought that's going to be terrific, right? So <laughs> I, I'm up in Sydney and I'm giving this talk in a big auditorium about cutting edge Australian research and how we've found this and what works. For, and they were all bored stupid. They couldn't have been less interested. They were looking at their clocks, their watches and wondering in the bar opened and just, and I left that conference, uh, absolutely infuriated <laughs> it's just so cheesed off at that attitude and so but it was really useful because then I thought okay they, they can't hear it they can't at that stage the idea of well-being being a major role of schools was foreign language to them so I think, what can I do? So I, I went off and I studied everything I could damn well find everything on brains and learning and young people that I could find. And of course, this was a wonderful time of doing that because this is just at the time when the technology was giving us much more information about brain scans and patterns and so on. So it was the emergence of neuroscience combined with education. So I basically started to go back to them and deliver pretty much the same message about resilience, but um, but wrapped up in this different language. Now, I was a bit concerned because I thought, oh, teachers must know about how kids learn. But I found that they had not any knowledge, that that hadn't been covered at all in their professional training. And so suddenly I had a group of people who were taking notes rather than looking at their watches and waiting for the bar to open. Um, and that became really exciting in terms of that that changed because it became a way of then thinking, how can we reshape schools? And it's a, a, a job yet completed, of course, to become places of well-being and support. Do you find schools more receptive nowadays? Well, I think absolutely. I mean, schools have taken on well-being in various guises since that time. Um it's interesting to think about just the things that schools do now. It's almost seen as a fundamental aspect of of schooling is the well-being program in most schools, and I think that's an that's an exciting thing. And, and their awareness, I think, also of, of brains and how they learn is also heightened, which is good. What strikes me, Andrew, is that you've been so committed and driven. You know, there's been a challenge and then your first thought is, well, how do I overcome that challenge? How do I keep pushing forward? How do I find a new way to help if this one isn't working? Has your uh, writing of books been part of that? Is that part of your uh, hope to keep helping the greatest number of people? Well, to be honest with you, I generally find something that I don't know much about and write a book about it. Um, <laughs> so I often don't write from a position of expertise, but of curiosity. So I try to uh, find things that uh, <laughs> I don't quite understand. And, and of course, through the process of researching and combining knowledge, 
So in a way, my career has partly been a synthesizer of research or a simplifier of research into actionable steps. Um, and I suppose I see that as my major, my own personal strength. I think I can take quite complex information and distill it into ways that people will will understand. Um, and so perhaps just to give you an example of that, Way, way back when I was doing my clinical master's, I remember the lecturer putting up on the board, I think it was a, I think it was a, a, a chalkboard, it may have been, maybe it was a whiteboard, anyway, um, they wrote S and then an arrow and then had a box and then they had R. <laughs> and I said, what's that? And they said, well, that's, 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 that's psychology, stimulus response and I looked at it absolutely appalled and I'm going what's in the box and they go we can't measure what's in the box so we're not interested in the box <laughs> we're interested in the stimulus and the response and I of course as a you know as only a sort of young psychologist can do scoffed <laughs> derision at this which no doubt upset the lecturer immensely and I apologize um but I thought that's the point <laughs> surely we know more or we, that's where we need to be not just in just the you know the, what instigates things and what's the response uh so it was pure behaviorism right and so that then drove a lot of my thinking for the next sort of oh, 20 years really is what's in that damn box and of course while I was doing that, I was thinking uh, that one of the things that psychology does well is it thinks about behavior and it thinks about thinking well. But uh, what I noticed was that it doesn't really deal with feelings awfully well. So nowhere near as, as well. So that's basically why uh, I ended up writing the A to Z of of, uh, of feelings, which is uh, part of what I'll be presenting at the conference. Um, and, and partly that was inspired by Stephanie Alexander. Now, I don't know whether you know Stephanie's wonderful cookbook. It's a great cookbook, <laughs> right? Um, and it's sort of got, you know, the A to Z of, of recipes, really. Here's artichokes and here's zucchinis. And uh, if, if you haven't got it, Nina, the, the North African marinade is to die for, right? It's just absolutely wonderful. Anyway, so I'm cooking away with this and I'm thinking one night as I'm sort of uh, – and I thought, wouldn't it be good to have one of these for feelings, because I've never seen something like that. And I thought it would be really useful for psychologists to get something like that, but also sort of really for just people generally. And so that's what I wrote. And I thought about, what am I, what am I going to put as A? And I thought, oh, well, abandonment's probably pretty up there. And I thought, well, that's a bit of a bummer to begin with. So I started with acceptance and I put abandonment back in rejection. Um, then it goes from really acceptance to zest all the way through. So that, that was exciting. So it's been uh, not so much driven, but intrigue, really. That's, I think, been the passion. Partly, how do I make a difference here? Or what what's missing here and what can I add? It's interesting, though, I think, that you've been driven by intrigue. Um, having worked myself in CAMS, you know, you were saying before, it was exhilarating. And, and parts of my experience in CAMS are also exhilarating, but there was a fair degree at times of, of a bit of hopelessness and helplessness, which does bring me to the topic of tricky kids um, and how, uh, how it can end up making you feel as a clinician working with a really tricky situation. What was your inspiration for writing specifically on tricky kids? 
there are there are a number of things that are probably worth saying. I mean, I I was also intrigued by Carl Jung's theory of the shadow and became more enchanted through my friend and mentor Peter O'Connor about Jungian work and, and dream analysis, but that's a, another story. Um, and so partly I had to think, well, what's the shadow of a CAMS? What's the shadow of a mental health service? And, of course, it's craziness, right? And so basically what you have then is sometimes massive craziness behind the scenes <laughs> in mental health services, which is interesting, which is why also, you know, to be, sound a bit flippant about it, why drug and alcohol services often have the best parties too. Um, so it's sort of an interesting kind of the counter flip of it all, right? And so, and I was also intrigued by the way that they'd structured mental health services. I was very aware that in the late 80s, there'd been a, a really interesting study by Len Bickman, who had got a, a small research grant of about $80 million to set up a, a sort of parallel mental health services in Fort Worth in the north of California, one basically being the bells and whistles of a sort of multidisciplinary team with access to inpatient beds and 24-hour assertive follow-up and, you know, home services if they needed it and so on. And Len compared that with a, a single worker model that said, you know, Nina, if you want to take this person on, we'll support you. So you'll have to have holidays and breaks and so on. But if you need access to other areas of expertise, you call it. And the clinical outcomes, of course, were relatively equivalent. In fact, the single worker model had a slight advantage of continuity over the multidisciplinary team. But of course, our mental health services, partly, I think, due to our desire for accountability, go for multidisciplinary teams. And I'm not sure necessarily that was the wisest choice. So, um, so that's sort of part of the context of really thinking about this. And also I was aware that I was getting these kids that were coming in with so many diagnoses that just overlapped. I mean, kids would be coming in dragging the alphabet behind them. They've got this and they've got they've got OCD and they've got ADD and they've got ADHD, you know. And I thought, and conduct disorder and blah, 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 blah. and okay. That's that's all very well, but really all those diagnostic categories didn't help me much because there was such a mishmash of overlap. And I thought, well, we can continue to sort of diagnose them. And of course, the world will. And there's some advantage to doing that. I'm not anti-diagnosis, but at the same time, they all bear some similarities. And that's sort of their tricky behaviors for us all. And so I started to come up with this idea of just, you know, tricky kids and tricky behaviors, which became a real phenomenon. Um, put out this sort of book, which was just a collection of the different sorts of kids I'd seen over the years, of course, which was a lot. And thinking about different groupings of kids and different clusters of behaviors and what the heck you might do about it. Because I think... Uh, I think any clinical psychologist worth their salt at some point sits back with most of their clients and scratches their head and go, what the hell am I going to do now? You know, um, because, uh, you know, you should be intrigued by your clients. And if you're not, probably you're not being curious enough. You know, if you're not being kind of, what the heck's going on here? And I think that became a really powerful term to use, tricky kids. Um, and it was it was destigmatizing for parents and for kids as well. So we can still hold 
you know, and so people would say, well, you talk about tricky kids and then, but what about my child has got ADD or is on the spectrum or whatever it was? And I said, well, it still applies to them as well. So you can have, have your diagnosis and be a tricky kid at the same time. They go, yeah. Who have been the key tricky kids in your life that might have had, there was your clients, were there any, were there any other people in your life who were an inspiration for writing on this? Um, I think I myself was a tricky kid, really. I think I was a difficult student in school. And the evidence that I have for this that's most telling is that I am old enough to have grown up in a time of the famous milk delivery to school, the milk bottle, which was... (laughs) It's for anyone who's old enough to remember it is much hated in people's memory because they'd often sit in the sun and curdle and then by morning tea almost induce somebody usually at morning tea to vomit <laughs> morning morning recess right um, now I in primary school was given a job and that job was to guard the milk bottles in the morning and it was only years later that I had the, you know, a bit slow on the uptake, really, uh, that nobody was going to steal that milk. So that teacher clearly wanted me out of her class as quickly as possible. (laughs) And I think very wisely, very wisely so. But, I mean, my clients, you know, there's been a lot of clients who've taught me a lot about – about just how things, in fact, I learned more of my clients than they learned from me, I'm, I'm absolutely sure. So so I sort of, um, you know, think about my teachers and many of my teachers don't realise they're my teachers, they're, they're often masqueraded as my clients, but I find them incredibly valuable. So perhaps to give you a, a, a kind of classic example of one, I don't know whether I'm allowed to swear in this, but the, the, the literal response is, is swearing, so let's, let's bear with it and I apologise in advance, but I'll never forget a young man I saw uh, who lives up in the Dandenong Ranges and uh, near in the east of Melbourne. And he was referred because he was punching trees. And so he comes in to see me and he's got bandages around both knuckles of both arms because he's really been belt, belting them. And so I had a discussion with him. Now, as we talked, it became very apparent to me that not only was he a tree hitter, he was also a very patriotic character. Some might say a downright racist, but we'll, we'll perhaps give him the benefit of the doubt at the moment. And so he, and he would spend a lot of time hitting trees. I mean, obviously he had major anger stuff. And I'm thinking, what do I do with this? So <laughs> I remember saying to him after talking to him for a while i said it's not it's not very australian to hit gum trees mate you know i think hitting gum trees is just you know not the right thing i think you should look for the introduced species the foreign trees the pine trees that kind of stuff and it's amazing it's always been amazing to me what kids will agree to do <laughs> if you uh if you've had a really you know good conversation with them that they'll agree to do anything it's amazing you know um and so i said look mate you know would you mind and it was sort of look mate you know that was the sort of guy this this kid was right he's 14 or something like that look listen mate i said you know i don't think you should hit gum trees i think you should 
look around, look around and basically, you know, find the other trees and hit them instead. And he, he looked at me very sincerely. He went, yeah, I hadn't thought about that, mate. He said, you're right. I'll do that. So he went off anyway. So he came back in a week or two and his arm, his hands were clear, right? And I'm, I'm going, what's going on, mate? He said, I'm sick of looking for fucking trees, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I guess what I'd learned from Ericsson was that human beings are incredibly sequenced. And so in some ways, this is the behavioral stuff, isn't it? That basically behavior occurs in dance sequences, and so we, you know, and, and teenagers do pretty much the same dumb things in pretty much the same dumb ways over and over again. And if you can change one element of the dance step, you, encha- you change the entire dance. And so what intrigued me then was I was in the States and I was listening to Donald Meikenbaum, of course, was one of the forerunners of CBT. And Meikenbaum was a fascinating character. Who, whose childhood friend was Woody Allen. And so you can kind of see where the idea of self-talk being so powerful was. And Markenborn wasn't quite sure that CBT worked outside of New York City, let alone in Australia. And so I came back from that and thought about it. And I think a lot of the kids that I see, it's actually not CBT, it's BCT. So if I change what they do, then I can change the way they think about that. So I was sort of working in a, a different way than the way that uh, – so that, of course, fitted well with the Ericksonian strategic therapy. Here's try this experiment and, and use that. And, of course, then that then aligned with the narrative therapists and solution-based therapists of Michael White and David Epstein and, and that, you know, those wonderful people who really contributed to our field so much. So – I'm reflecting that uh, yourself having been a tricky kid, that we must be able to see that there's some positives in those characteristics that it brings a kid to our attention as being tricky. Is that part of the conceptualization, seeing seeing the strengths in the, the very characteristics that make a tricky kid difficult to manage? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that these kids have all the get up and go in the world. These these the these the the world shifters of the future. And what often we as adults want to do is to stifle the very strengths that will set them up for success. And so then the game plan came to be, well, how do we use those strengths as I talked about with uh, my uh, rather flippantly with my tree hitter. Um but and we did further work after that. It wasn't that was the end of the game, but um, that was a it was good intro. Um, then to give them a role, and again that came back to Adler's idea that they don't learn to succeed in socially undesirable ways until they've learned that they can't succeed. And there are lots of kids that learn that they can't succeed in socially desirable ways. So my job then is to figure out a way for that kid to use that strength to succeed in a socially desirable way. And while I was thinking about that, I was also starting to get to a realisation, and again, I apologise for being slow on the uptake, that psychology is based on a lie. And the lie is that psychology is an individual game. 
And lots of people talk about it still like it's an individual game. If you build up your assets and your strengths and kind of be the best possible you and all that kind of stuff, things will improve or change your internal thinking. And I thought that's a load of rubbish, really, because I think that we can only be as mentally healthy as our relationships allow us to be. So we all live or die by the strength of our relationships. And indeed, if I think back to the, you know, the really the people in peril when I was working in the cat teams, what had caused them to get there wasn't their individual deficits, if you like, or even their, you know, conditions or diagnosis. It was usually some form of relationship breakdown that had broken their hearts, broken their belief in the their willingness to go on in life. And so if you could improve then relationships, that then became a critical way of improving well-being and mental health. So I wondered, without giving too much away from your keynote at the conference, I wonder if you might uh, reflect a little bit on a few characteristics that you think we as clinicians need to cultivate to work effectively with tricky kids and tricky behaviours. I know you've mentioned curiosity. I think it does require a degree of humility to be prepared not to know, to be prepared to sometimes really pause and go, I've got no idea what to do here. And then to look at what might be a little little possibility in terms of just I can't think about changing everything. So I'm going to change one element. What might make a difference? Um, And sometimes it can be quite obscure to you as well. I'll perhaps give you another example. A family, again, that I saw many years ago had a problem. And the problem was that their daughter was incredibly fearful and um, would come into the parents' bedroom in the middle of the night and wouldn't leave. And so this became a a sort of major family problem. So the fear was partly it, okay? And partly the fear had some basis because the the parents' relationship had been somewhat strained, and so we had to deal with that. But so I'm thinking, how do I alleviate this early problem a bit? So I'm just, I've got no idea. So I'm just going what, to, what, what's something strange that I can do to kind of break up this dance sequence? So she comes in the middle of the night. Basically, the parents are either asleep or kind of looking a bit somber. And she climbs into bed and basically has a, a sort of panic attack, really, in the bed. And so I thought, you know, the logical response would be to try and calm everything down. And so the other, the, other, the other rule, I suppose, in my head is to try not to be the adult that the young person thinks you should be, really. They often have an expectation of what you're going to do before you've even thought about doing it. And so partly I'm inspired by trying not to do that. So, I mean, one of the most valuable questions in therapy is basically, have you seen anybody else? And what did they suggest? And was that useful? And when kids go, no, that was crap and that was useful and so on. um, Well, that saves you a lot of time because, you know, that's not going to work. You know, there was a a year eight girl who came in recently and she sat, she, uh, 
and she was, you know, anxiety disorder. And she sat down and glared at me as only year eight girls can do. And she said to me before we, I'd even said anything, this is the first time I met her. I said, if she said, if you tell me to breathe out slowly and listen to a mindfulness app, I'm going to kid you. Okay. And Okay. Good. Okay. We've got that clear. So anyway, back to this family, this family is a lovely family. And, um, and, uh, they, you know, they had some internal problems, but you know, I didn't think it was, uh, anything insurmountable would get through it because they're good people. So I, I asked the girl to go out into the waiting room and I spoke to the parents. I said, I want to ask you to do something bizarre. And I, I can't really explain to you why I'm going to ask you to do this, but I just want you to do it. Would you be prepared to trust me? And they, they very kindly, and again, it amazes me how much trust is invested in you as a therapist, really. It's remarkable. They, they agreed. I said, next time your daughter comes in, I want you to act as if you've seen a ghost and I want you to kind of be really dramatic, and and so we acted out. If you saw a ghost in the middle of the night, what would you do? And they kind of freaked out and did all this kind of stuff. And then they laughed because, of course, it was funny, you know, watching each other kind of, ah, you know. So basically, it was a, that's what exactly it. That's it. It was almost like being a film producer. That's what I want you to do. Okay. So next time the girl comes in, I go, ah, in the middle of the night. And they're laughing, absolutely laughing. And the girl goes, oh, all right, and goes back to her room and goes to sleep. And I'm thinking... <laughs> So here we've got sort of half the problem solved just through just a little tweak in the sequence of their behavior. It's really intriguing to me. Now, I don't always get it right, obviously, but at the same time, you always get some shift. So even if it's not as dramatic as that one, getting a shift is is incredible. And that will start then the, the ball rolling in terms of towards their own health and better functioning. So it sounds like cultivating our creativity is also a helpful element of working with these kind of family situations. Well, they're miserable enough already, aren't they? I mean, you don't need to make them more miserable. So you've got to try and work out a way to have this change in a slightly fun way. I mean, you know, I mean, teenagers have serious problems very seriously, but they don't need to be solved seriously. So you kind of then think, okay, well, how can I alleviate this without basically making you more miserable? Sounds really great, Andrew. And thank you so much for coming on to Clinically Thinking and sharing all of that with us today. It's been a delight. Thank you. I've really, <laughs> I hope uh, it feels very indulgent talking about myself in this way, but uh, thank you. Well, it's lovely for our listeners and myself to be able to learn from you. And if our listeners would like to learn more, they can catch you, your keynote and your workshop at the conference and they can find you at andrewfuller.com.au or on the Generation Next podcast, which is a really fantastic resource uh, for people working with kids and families. Is there anywhere else you'd like to mention that people might be able to access some of your... Uh, the other website is mylearningstrengths.com. I set up um, a website... Um, where young, well, people of any age can go and they do a sort of analysis of their learning strengths uh, and then they get a free letter from me, email, that says, congratulations, Nina, you're really good at this, this, you want to get a bit another area, here's a way of doing it. And the reason I did that was because I thought very few young people get to hear about something they're good at from an adult who's neither their teacher nor their parent. And uh, it's been a remarkable success. 40,000 young people around the world have done it. 
And uh, I get these beautiful, beautiful emails from from kids from Scotland, from Argentina, everywhere, you know, and often kids saying, you know, thank you, you're the first person ever told me I'm smart or can you tell my teacher she thinks I'm dumb or, you know. <laughs> um, and it's been a great thing to do. It doesn't sort of – it's not trying to replace a psychological test or anything like that. I'm not, I'm not pretending it to be, you know, anything highfalutin. But at the same time, it's a sort of way of – you know, I suppose coming back to the Adler idea, I think everyone's smart, but they're smart in different ways. And working out how how kids are smart is part of our job, really, because often they're not smart in classical school ways, but they're smart. I mean, I've seen lots of kids with great street cred, incredibly, you know, they would survive much longer than me in a really difficult situation. They've, they've got all the get up and go to do it. But that's not really acknowledged by formal schooling. And yet they're going to be absolute world beaters. And so my belief, I think, in in young people to find their way is incredible. Thank you so much again, Andrew. Thanks for joining us and thanks for the work that you do. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll join us again soon for another conversation from the wide world of clinical psychology. Please subscribe to Clinically Thinking so you don't miss the next episode. You can also follow us and interact with our Facebook page. You may like to share feedback, comments or questions about the topic we've just listened to or even leave a suggestion for someone you'd like to hear from in the future. Until next time, I'm Dr Lisa Chantler. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.